Welcome to the Liberty Leadership in Lies with Larry Linton podcast. For those of you who are new listeners, this podcast will be about exactly what the title implies. We will discuss the state of liberty in our republic today and how it is being eroded by the very institution that was created by our founding fathers to protect it, which is the government that now hates us. We'll also discuss the many different types and styles of leadership that exist today, but more frequently we'll talk about how our republic is best served by true servant leadership in elected office. On the topic of lies, we will discuss the many pervasive lies that are told in society today, and not only by our government, but their willing partners in the news media, social media, and tech sectors. These lies, they're designed to rob us of our liberty and destroy our trust in and reliance on the founding principles of our nation and its constitution. I will also use a portion of each episode to discuss my election campaign to represent Tennessee's House of Representatives, District 12. And what I hope to accomplish with my campaign is just basically a couple of things. I want to bring to Nashville an example of what following an oath to the Constitution looks like. And this is based upon my 30 years of service to our nation in the United States Navy. Additionally, once I am in Nashville, I would like to restore the state's role as the creator of and the parent to the federal government. What a lot of people don't realize is that our federal government is not a party to our Constitution, but it is a product of the Constitution. And this Constitution is a charter between all of the states that empowers the federal government with certain and extremely limited powers, such as providing for the common defense and to regulate trade. We can also discuss any tactics or techniques the listeners may have in the fight to restore our nation's founding principles when engaging with what has apparently become the people's enemy over the course of generations now, and that is the government that, one, hates us, and two, only sees us as the means to obtain and maintain power. If you would like to contact the show, just send an email to Larry at LibertyLeadershipAndLies.com. You can also subscribe to my blog there at the website. Additionally, even at the website, you can contribute to my campaign. You can find the podcast and the campaign on social media. Just search for Larry for TN12 on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the campaign info and Liberty Leadership and Lies with Larry Lynn for the podcast social media pages. I'm also on Telegram as Liberty Leadership and Lies. I will be recording the show either from the Goat Locker Studio in Sevierville, Tennessee, or on remote locations where my consulting business or election campaign takes me. Well, audience, I must tell you that I'm really fired up about this election. This election will be about leadership. It will be a choice between the selfish leadership of nearly every member serving in elected office and the servant leadership I will bring to the table for House District 12 and the entire General Assembly. Tennesseans and Americans are not served and do not need the kind of leadership expressed in our state and our nation's capital right now. Last week's Meet the Candidate event provided extra fuel for my fire and my desire to serve my country once again. Mind you, the fire has always been there, but now it is turning into an inferno that will propel us to the state capitol in Nashville. Serving my beloved state of Tennessee will in turn serve my country. If you caught the weekend update, I discussed a little bit about the straw poll Empowered Severe conducted during the event. At first, I was a bit let down by the results, but then I started thinking about the poll some more. 
a 20% showing is not too bad considering many of the circumstances right now. Let me break it down for you a bit more than I did on the weekend update. All told, there were 33 candidates, including myself, present at the event. Most of those candidates brought at least one member of their family with them as well. We all know that family members tend to vote the same way, right? Almost every single one of those candidates know my opponent personally or professionally. They are either family, friends, or colleagues, or just apathetic voters that vote purely based upon the R or D after a candidate's name on the ballot. I'm a newcomer on the scene here in Sevier County and have not developed relationships with many of the candidates or they with me. Regular listeners to this program know how much I am enamored with the political parties in our state and our nation. I've only had in-depth discussions about my campaign and my platform with only two of the candidates that were present at the event. I have attended every county GOP meeting for more than a year now, or at least the ones that have been advertised, which is a topic for another day. I have also attended every Constitutional Conservatives of Tennessee meeting or rally that I've been in town for. The Constitutional Conservatives of Tennessee are much, much better at advertising their events, by the way. So not having these relationships is one of the drawbacks of not being a bona fide Republican according to state Republican Party rules. I'm running as an independent constitutional conservative. State Republican Party rules, according to Article 9, Section 1 of their bylaws, defines what a bona fide Republican is. It's that any individual who is actively involved in the Tennessee Republican Party, his county Republican Party, or any recognized auxiliary organization of either, and resides and is registered to vote in said county. Well, I meet that. But here comes the other ones. Any individual has voted in at least three of the four most recent statewide Republican primary elections, or any individual who's vouched for in writing as a bona fide Republican by an officer of the Tennessee Republican Party. Anyways, I don't meet the second or the third one because I've not resided long enough in Tennessee to vote in three of the last four primaries. Because that would mean I've had to live here for at least six years, and I'm just now closing on five years since my retirement from the Navy and settling down here. Then, for me, there's also the state GOP's requirement that pay to play if you want to run as a Republican. Payable once you've proven yourself to be a bona fide Republican. That's just a lot of hoops to jump through to satisfy a statewide party that cannot even control its declared members of the General Assembly. Well, maybe they are controlling them, and that's why we have what we have. But that pay-to-play, that's almost hilarious if it wasn't so easily recognizable as an incumbent protection protocol. Protocols that have led to a very weak statewide Republican Party. But this brings us full circle back to the straw poll that was conducted at the event and that I talked about on the weekend update. As I mentioned, I garnered 20% of the vote. Looking at the vote totals, and not counting my wife's or daughter's votes, because of course they'd vote for me, or some of the other people who I believe voted for me based upon previous conversations and interactions the past few months, the number of other votes I did receive are almost exactly the same as the number of people that came up to my table and engaged with me by asking questions. So as I mentioned in the weekend update, this looks like my message resonates with anybody I talk to. As this campaign really gets moving after the primary solidify who my opponent will be, like they really need that, anyway, it will be vital for me to get out and about to meet and talk with my fellow residents of House District 12. My platform is pretty simple. The Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution serves as the foundation for all the work that is necessary. 
The Tenth Amendment states the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited to it by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Straightforward language that the new aristocracy and their failed selfish leadership has either forgotten or ignored, and we all know that it is the latter. Now, in reference to the wording again, what does it mean in the amendment when it states the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution? Where can we find the powers delegated to the United States in the Constitution? That's not a trick question, and we've discussed that topic many times before. The powers delegated to the United States are contained in Article 1, Section 8. Those are Congress's enumerated powers. The areas where the states agreed that the central government, the federal government, would have supremacy in crafting legislation. Keep that word supremacy in mind for a bit. We'll talk some more about it. So, Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution, which is an agreement among the several states that created the federal government, it contains 18 clauses that specifically list the powers the legislative branch has. So, if a power is not listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, that authority or power is not granted to the federal government and is reserved to the states and the people. That fact is ignored or forgotten by elected officials in the Congress and in state capitals all across our great republic. The Tenth Amendment, indeed all the amendments in the Bill of Rights, are why there are so many fights in the appointment process for justices to the United States Supreme Court. The commies and transpublicans do not want original reading and interpretation of the Constitution to derail their plans on radically transforming our republic first to a pure democracy which will inevitably lead to a totalitarian state. These commies and transpublicans will often bring up Article 6, Clause 2 of the United States Constitution in their counter-arguments to the Tenth Amendment or against any of the other amendments which make up our Bill of Rights. What is Article 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution, you ask? Well, it is referred to as the Supremacy Clause in the United States Constitution. So like I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the word supremacy. At last Thursday's event, I was in an intense discussion with one of the candidates, who shall remain nameless at this point, but this currently serving elected member of the Tennessee House of Representatives is an attorney by trade and sits on the House Committee on Civil Justice. In addition to that committee, he also serves on the Calendar and Rules Committee and the Children and Family Affairs Subcommittee. The key takeaway, though, is that this candidate, this currently serving member of the General Assembly, is a lawyer. A lawyer that, based upon our almost heated discussion, firmly believes that the Supremacy Clause of the United States Constitution trumps anything that the states can do. Let's dig into that for just a moment, shall we? The Supremacy Clause states, by the way, this clause is referred to as the Supremacy Clause by people other than the Founding Fathers. That term was applied much later in the life of our Republic. Anyway, Article 6, Clause 2 states, this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, yada, yada, yada. Sounds like he was correct a little bit, right? Now remember, these were much simpler times when the Constitution was written. Written by people that believed that everybody in the newly formed republic loved liberty as much as they loved life itself. The Constitution became the original framework of the government of the United States of America on the 21st of June, 1788, after New Hampshire became the ninth of 13 states to ratify it, which satisfied the three-quarter of states' requirement for ratification. 
The Bill of Rights was ratified on the 15th of December, 1791, three years after the Constitution was ratified. Why exactly was the Bill of Rights added to the Constitution so soon after its ratification? Well, the Founding Fathers, at the urging of the states, needed to clarify the restrictions on the government. So the timeline is this. Article 6, Clause 2, the Supremacy Clause, as part of the main body of the Constitution, was ratified in June 1788. To clear things up that were vague or could be twisted in the original wording of the Constitution, the framers had the Bill of Rights ratified in December 1791. Now let's get on to the clause itself. Of particular note is the wording of the Supremacy Clause that is often omitted when citing it. I'll read them again. This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof but wait, let's stop right there and point out the self-limiting factor of the Supremacy Clause that is ignored. Laws which shall be made in pursuance of. Does that mean that any and all laws that Congress passes? Of course not, but that is what the commies and transpublicans would want us all to believe, especially the lawyers. But remember, all lawmaking authority in our republic resides in the Congress of the United States, the legislative branch, not in the judicial or executive branches. So Supreme Court justices and Supreme Court decisions, the president and presidential executive orders, do not make law. And, this is the big and, all laws must fall within the scope of Article 1, Section 8. Congress has enumerated very restricted powers. Go ahead and read those 18 clauses. You will see that the federal government was meant to be very limited in its power and authority. The Founding Fathers were brilliant in the way they cleaned up Article 6, Clause 2 by adding the Tenth Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Congress's authority would be supreme in all matters listed in their enumerated powers only. Everything else was left to the states and the people. Everything else. And since the Tenth Amendment was ratified after the Constitution was ratified, that would make the Tenth Amendment the supremacy amendment of the Bill of Rights. But we have such poor or selfish leadership in our state capitals and in Washington, D.C., they will never see it that way until they are forced to. Who will force them to do that? Well, me for one, but it should be all of us. I need all the voters in Sevier County to send me to Nashville in the November elections to represent them and their constitutionally protected Tenth Amendment rights. Also, their Ninth Amendment, which states the enumeration in the Constitution here again, it's referring to Article 1, Section 8's enumerated powers. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. It is time to not only make Washington, D.C. heal to the sovereign states and the citizens, but it is time for the Tennessee General Assembly to be reacquainted with their responsibility to force the government back into its proper and constitutionally assigned role. It is long past time to restore the correct balance to our federal system of government where the citizens and the individual states are the sovereign of the federal government. All other reforms needed to government is dependent on the General Assembly taking action to put in check the vast overreach of this federal government. Anybody that seeks to serve or currently serves in a state's legislative body that will not do that, that work that is necessary to restore government to its proper role in our lives and work only for their constituents, is demonstrating leadership that the people do not deserve. It is at best weak leadership. At worst, it is selfish leadership. 
They are bending the knee to the federal government so they can become mini Santa Clauses using their constituents, using our sweat equity gained through taxes and our freedoms as bargaining chips. We all deserve servant leadership in elected office that will look to the original intent of the Constitution to preserve liberty for the people. Speaking of original intent in the Bill of Rights, another one of my issues will be restoring true Second Amendment protections. Not like the bill the current General Assembly and Governor Lee call constitutional carry, but true constitutional carry that understands the original intent of the words shall not be infringed. You know, during that near-heated discussion with the other candidate, we touched on the issue of illegal immigration. Once again, this person, this lawyer, fell back on their position of the supremacy clause. Only the federal government can dictate immigration policy. Well, that's true. It's right there in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4 of the Constitution. But what about the other part of the Constitution that states this? The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. And on application of the legislature or the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. This comes from Article 4, Section 4 of the United States Constitution. What has the federal government done in response to the invasion along the southern border other than enable the continuation of the invasion? What has the federal government done in response to the legislatures and governors of the border states in demanding it, the federal government, demanding it put a stop to the invasion? Especially when the communists control the executive and legislative branches of government. It has ignored them or fought against them at every turn. The Republican form of government is ignored as well. Where the will of the people through their state legislators have passed voter integrity legislation, or we're limiting the number of murdering children by cutting down the use of abortion as a birth control method, or even fighting against parents across the nation that are pushing back against the sexualization of their children in government schools. We've all seen the federal government's response. They ignore the will of the individual state legislatures and want to force their communistic worldview down the throats of every citizen in our republic. They weaponize law enforcement against concerned parents to protect the school boards that are sexualizing and victimizing our children. If anyone, as an elected representative at the state level, falls back on a portion of the United States Constitution called the Supremacy Clause, and they do not reference any other part of the U.S. or state constitution that limits government, they are just a pawn of the political parties and big government that has put our republic on a march towards pure democracy. The people of Tennessee and of these United States of America, deserve better than the leadership they are demonstrating. And I was on a discussion on Facebook about recall elections for school board members. That's one of my platform priorities. This individual told me that the Tennessee Code provides for the recall of school board members, and it can be found in the Tennessee Code annotated. Specifically, Article 49-2-213, Removal of Local Board of Education Member by Registered Voters. I'll be the first to admit if I'm wrong where I make a mistake and I was unaware that the voters here in Tennessee can recall elected members of the school board. But it was only a partial mistake though. Let me discuss. 49-2-213. After reading the entire chapter, I discovered this little caveat though concerning the ability to recall school board members in subparagraph E at the very bottom of the code, the very last part of the code. It states, this section only applies in counties having a population of not less than 98,200 and not more than 98,300, 
according to the 2010 federal census or any subsequent federal census. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? The Tennessee Code limits recall elections for school board members to counties that have a very specific population range, a range with a difference of only 100 people. It's very exclusionary. So I was wondering what county in this state has that very specific population range. After a quick internet search, I found that there is not one single county in our state that meets that criteria. Not one. So what purpose does that code serve? Absolutely zero purpose. That is why I will be working on changing the code to ensure that every county, meaning every voting age citizen in our volunteer state, has the ability to recall school board members that are purchasing divisive, corrosive, sexualizing curriculum with our sweat equity. They need to be removed from office. I'm also encouraging the residents here in Sevier County to take a long, hard look at the curriculum the members of our school board have purchased with our money and are subjecting the children to. Curriculum that is factually inaccurate in order to drive the narratives pushed in the 1619 Project or in the tenets of the critical race theory, or a curriculum that exposes our children to sexualization, such as the recently purchased second-step social-emotional learning. The current public government education system in our state and our nation needs to be scrapped and rebuilt from the ground up. In the rebuilding of that institution, a few constitutional principles should be the foundation of the new system. First, Nowhere in Article 1, Section 8 of the Enumerated Powers does the Constitution grant the federal government any authority in public education. So, taxes should no longer be paid to support the Federal Department of Education, and that cabinet can be eliminated entirely. That also means that the federal government cannot insert itself in decisions about public education or use federal dollars as the carrot and stick to obtain compliance with federal policies or positions. They are political policies that have zero bearing on math, science, history, as well as English and grammar. That should be, as it used to be, the focus of education. Washington, D.C. does not need to be involved in the decisions that should be left completely at the local level. Federal involvement has directly led to the politicization and culture rot that is pervasive in school districts all across the nation. And since it is property taxes that support local school districts, the citizens that pay those taxes should have more control of what happens in their district, for who sits and for how long on a school board. On directing the school board in the formulation of policy and what curriculums will be purchased with their tax dollars. Parental input on all curriculums talk should be a requirement. Parents should have first say on what is being put into their children's heads. For public education to be truly public and not government education, the residents of the county have the authority, accountability, and responsibility for all aspects of the education system in that county. Anything less and it is just a government education system, and we have seen what happens with that, haven't we? Again, part of my platform on public education is to ensure that there is no shady code that limits the ability of residents, the rights of parents and concerned citizens in any county to recall members of the school board that work against the parents' best interests for their children. The constitutional principle of all powers inherent in the people needs to be honored and respected again by the people elected to serve their constituents. It appears that every piece of pro-liberty legislation 
meaning legislation that protects the rights of the people and limits the power and scope of government, is being killed in subcommittee or committee and not even being brought to the floor of the Senate or House in our General Assembly. Do you know why that happens? Because pro-liberty legislation puts the power back in the hands of the voters, and it takes it out of the hands of the lobbyists, special interests, and political parties. Well, I'm beholden to none of them, which is why when this campaign gets closer to Election Day, there will be extensive amounts of money spent to ensure that I do not get elected. You can all look up who contributes to my campaign as well as who contributes to the person I will be running against. There are no PACs contributing to my campaign. Just individual people that know me, that know my love of our state and our country, and my love of the Constitution and its Christian principles. People that know I will follow my oath as I did for 30 years on active duty in the United States Navy. If that sounds like the qualities you would like to see in an elected member of the state legislature, you can contribute to my campaign as well. Every little bit can help push me over the finish line and into the winner's circle. Head on over to my social media pages or the website libertyleadershipandlies.com and click the donate button. It will take you to the online form to donate. State law requires me to use my best efforts to collect and report the name, address, occupation, and employer of individuals whose contribution exceeds $100 in an election cycle. Maximum individual contributions to my campaign for this election cycle is $1,600, and the maximum for couples is $3,200. All of that information is reported to the Tennessee Secretary of State quarterly, so you can go look up my information, as well as that of my opponent. There are no political action committees donating to me. Now, for my opponent, that's another matter. He has already received significant donations from political action committees, most of them in Nashville, exceeding tens of thousands of dollars. Who wants him elected more? Individuals or political action committees, lobbyists, special interest groups, and trans-publican members of the Tennessee GOP? That's who wants him elected. Whose bidding do you think he will do, or has done since 2012? Well, enough about my opponent, though. As the campaign goes on, there will be stark differences between him and I that I will share on this platform and my social media sites. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you can get notified when a new episode is released. Follow my campaign on social media, too. If you like the message, my platform that I am providing, share it, especially you residents here in Sevier County. Once again, if you can financially support my campaign, please do so. Do not contribute, though, if it will put you or your family in a financial bind. The most important thing I would like to see you all do is vote. You can even volunteer to serve as a poll watcher on Election Day. Our state and country's confidence in the electoral process has taken a huge hit recently, and for good reason. You know what can prevent cheating or expose it for certain? If there is a greater than 80% voter participation on election day, no algorithm or ballot box stuffing can overcome that level of actual participation. So get out and vote. Don't let this off-presidential election year be like others in the past where less than 20% of the population votes. Vote like your life is depending on it. After all, your liberties and those of your children and grandchildren do depend on every living and actual person participating in our system of self-governance. 
As we close the show this week, I would like to leave you all with this from God's Word. Today, it comes to us from Ecclesiastes 10, 18. Laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. Laziness, or apathy, has led us to this point in our republic's history. Being idle in our system of self-governance has led to the erosion of our rights and the usurpers of our liberty in Nashville and Washington, D.C., taking our apathy as our consent to their actions. Together, we can end that and send a message to Nashville and our fellow Tennesseans that all power is inherent in we, the people. Until next week, stand in the arena with me. Reveille, it's time to wake up.